I have over 300 lawyers and I don't know how many law firms it is that send me all of their catastrophic cases. That's Andrew Finkelstein, managing partner of Finkelstein and Partners, renowned consumer activist and accomplished litigator. The reason why they send the work to me is because I asked. It just doesn't drop out of the sky. You got to go out and hustle. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, I sat down with Andrew Finkelstein to talk about how he runs his four, yes, four law firms. We covered everything he's learned over his decades of experience, from how to treat your employees to how to source new cases and where he sees the future of the legal industry going. The future of law is a consolidation. That's how I view it. And I think people ought to prepare for that. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Practicing law has been in Andrew Finkelstein's blood from an early age and he's seen it all in the 60 years since his firm's founding. I wanted to hear about the inception of the practice. Where did it all begin? Well, it began with my dad. He started the law firm back in 1959. He graduated from Brooklyn Law School and uh, was working in the city, working hard, and the city practice was tough. My grandfather lived up in Orange County, which is about an hour north of New York City. And at that time, uh, there were a lot of farms up here. Uh, there was a, a nice population, but it was not like very rural. Let's put it that way. And he would come up here, and my grandfather introduced him to a lawyer and asked him to help him out with some paperwork and pleadings. And my father did. And then next thing you know, he asked him to attend a court appearance, which he did. And when he did, the court officer actually opened the door for him, swung the gate open so we could go into the well and and called him, hello, counselor, can I help you with something? And my father's eyes opened up and said, this is quality of life. This is how you're supposed to practice because in New York City, and it still is that way, not disparaging the court officers or the system down there, but there's a big volume and a, a lot of people and people tend to forget their manners and tend to not treat people with the dignity and respect they deserve. And my father said, I'm going to add 15 years to my life if I move up to Orange County. And he did. And he started building the practice uh, one client at a time. And I remember him hustling, basically doing everything. And when I joined the firm, which was back in 91, there was one office, one location. And I viewed the office as a tremendous opportunity to really develop the business that I always wanted to create. I've always been an entrepreneur, and I viewed this opportunity as to build a law firm that had staying power. And I really thought about it critically from the business of law 
And while I joined the firm the day after I was admitted, I was picking my first jury. I went from trial to trial to trial, tried, took lots of lots of verdicts, but recognized that lots of lawyers take lots of verdicts. Not too many lawyers also go and get an MBA. So I went and got an MBA while I was actually trying cases and used the program to workshop my law firm. And I walked in to each of the professors and they respected that I was the first lawyer who went through the program and said to each one of them, hey, I'm not going to do the work that you're going to ask me to do if it's not related to a service industry. If you're going to ask me how much, what's the break-even analysis to produce X amount of widgets at whatever factory, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm just not going to do it. And to my surprise, they respected me for being forthright. And anything that had to do with any analysis of a service industry, I, I was all over. But everything else, I just didn't do. And it worked out great because I let everybody know that I was trying to build a service firm that focused on our clients and took that knowledge and information, embedded it into our firm practices. And uh, here we are in 2020. Now, you know, clearly you have a strong business acumen and are approaching the firm as a business at a time where it, even now it seems like m most firm owners may not truly look at it as a business. But what were the areas that you saw that most firms missed in terms of approaching, you know, not only growing a firm, but running a successful practice? Technology, in one word, technology. From the time I joined the firm, I viewed our business as a software company that happened to practice law. And that is what enabled us. And we invested at that time, we had 15 programmers. There was no iPhone. There was no apps. There was no accounting software. We had to build everything. And the Technology is what enabled us to develop and grow to what we have become and focusing on the client-centric approach. And it, between the two, so I, I know you're talking about what's differentiating the firm with both technology and client-centric. What's basically the interplay that you see between those two? I mean, do you think that those are the two key differentiators of your firm that separates you guys from, from other firms or is it something else? I think it's those two coupled with the fact that we put our client first when you it's easy to say client centric and we put our client first but we measure that and it's really important to look at every interaction from the point of view of the client not the lawyer's point of view and we talk about that all the time and make sure that our communications are from a client's perspective, not a lawyer's perspective and recognizing what is it that clients want when they hire us? What is it that they are truly trying to accomplish? And it's different than what the lawyer is trying to accomplish. And if we can do both, deliver to the client what they're expecting while delivering great legal services, then we've accomplished it. So I would say technology, client-centric as an organization, but from the perspective of the client. Because what I tell everyone, and, and I tell lawyers, that we are not compared, and I hesitated when you asked the question, because the question that you asked me is, what separates my firm from other firms? And the reality is no client can ever answer that question, because if they've hired my firm, 
they're not dealing with other lawyers and they don't know what it's like to be with other law firms. So I don't really view other law firms as my competition. My competition are all the other service organizations that my client comes in touch with day in and day out. My competition is American Express, Visa, how they answer the phone, uh, when they go to Starbucks, how they're treated at Starbucks. That's what we're being measured against. I'm not being measured against any other law firm. Now, I know you're someone who's clearly very data-driven, but on the other side of that, I something like client experience is oftentimes regarded as an intangible, right? So it's like, how do you, how do you measure that? But you've clearly put a focus on it. So how do, how do you reconcile the two? Well, we do measure it. We measure it through client surveys. The easiest way to measure how am I doing is you have to ask, how am I doing? Uh, not too many lawyers or law firms ask that question. And we ask that question throughout our entire relationship with our client because that's what it is. It's a, it's a relationship. I make sure that we have our client's photo in our electronic system so that it pops up Every time you're in your case management system, whatever that may be, we have our own, we created our own. But that case management system, it reminds everybody that we're dealing with human beings. This is not a file. This is not a number. It's a person who has needs that we are trying to satisfy. And it's that constant reminder. So then we also have electronic surveys, which I think are invaluable. And if anybody listening to this takes anything away from it, it ought to be the client survey. They are so easy now. They're simple apps. Find out from your clients how you're doing, not from a legal perspective, but from a human perspective. Are you creating the right perception with your clients? Because uh, that perception's everything. Um, and if a client perceives that you are delivering top-notch services, that you're responsive and you have their best interests at heart, then you're going to get future clients. The vast majority of our business comes from existing and prior clients by far, 70%. So that isn't by accident. That was a strategic decision to recognize the only way that somebody makes a recommendation because when you do make a recommendation, everybody's worried about themselves and the perception of how that recommendation reflects upon themselves. I recognize that if I recommend somebody and it creates a bad experience, it looks bad on me. So the only reason why people recommend my firm or your firm or anybody is because they've had good experiences with you and they, they expect that you'll deliver the same to the person that they refer. So if you're not focused on that and it happens by accident, you've gotten lucky. If you focus on it, then you will get results. It's It relates to trial. Anybody who tries cases, the case is about what you make it about. And our representation with our clients is about what we intentionally make it about. When we answer a new case call, we thank the clients for hiring us. We tell them, we, you, you've made the right choice. We will work hard for you. We want to know how you are doing. Please, it's my responsibility to explain to you the law, not for you to figure it out. If there is something that I've explained that I didn't do a good job, just let me know. I'll 
spend as much time as necessary to explain so you can make an educated and informed decision. If I was a client, that's what I would want to hear, not somebody telling me what to do or how to act. But I will also say what I suggested in there is we will work hard for you. Well, what's the takeaway? These guys work hard for me. So you should think and put out a list. I have a list of statements that my staff makes to clients, letting them know why they hired us. Thank you for trusting us. We're going to take good care of you. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Create the perception that you want clients to have. And you know, we had uh, Joey Coleman on the podcast recently. He wrote the book "Never Lose a Customer Again," and he said that the studies have shown that you know, basically, given a great experience or great result, the experience trumps the result in in nearly every every situation. And where so many firms are talking about the, the size of verdicts that they're getting for their clients, you even said, and I know you guys get huge verdicts as well, but you prioritize the type of experience that you provide to your clients. That's what it's all about. And I will tell you down to when somebody calls our office for the very first time, it has been shown through various studies when you introduce somebody for the first time, if you introduce them as the expert, the listener then accepts that information that much better. So we have a new case call center. If somebody calls with a car crash case, they will introduce whoever that the attorney is that's taking that call and say something as simple, oh, you're in luck. I'm so happy. I've got Andrew Finkelstein. He is one of our car crash experts. He'll be able to take good care of you. That subtle introduction frames the way with which that information is received and the way the client perceives the experience. Because if it's just passed through, oh, here's Michael Mogul, and there's no explanation as to who you are, why you're the right person to be speaking to, people will not be as receptive to the information that's provided and it affects the perception of that relationship. Now, I know we talked about a lot of the experience that clients at the firm have with the firm, but with over 300 staff, I, I think I read an interesting stat that 40% of the people in your firm have been with the firm for 20 years or more. And many of the members of the firm, there's, there's siblings working together. You've got married couples, lots of parents and kids. What, what do you attribute this degree of continuity to? The core purpose of the firm. And the core purpose of the firm is about taking care of one another. We are about compassion, care, and concern for our clients, colleagues, and our community. And we don't just say it, we live it. So we recognize that every single day we have to come in and work. And the reality is work is a four-letter word. No matter how much we enjoy work, everybody would rather be doing something else. So we recognize that and we do our best to make it as pleasurable as possible by putting our staff first. Because I, I tell everybody here that I actually work for them. They don't work for me. My job is to keep this place running and successful so everybody can come into the firm, enjoy their time while they're working, make a reasonable compensation, have an opportunity to make as much as you want, and enjoy life. For many attorneys, running one successful practice can be enough. 
But Andrew now runs four law firms, and he's involved in numerous other projects as well. So that begs the question, how does Andrew define success? Success is an individualized perception. And you can take the exact same set of facts, and one person perceives it as success, another person perceives it as failure, but it's the exact same set of facts. And to me, the success that one would have is how they view themselves and did they do everything that they thought was appropriate in all of the situations, in the way they treated other people, the way they treated themselves, and how they feel about the particular circumstances that they're in. And to me, success is about being centered and down to earth and treating people with dignity and getting that same thing in return. I don't measure success through numbers. I measure success through having a loving family, frankly, and knowing that how the people I care about the most feel about me and I feel about them. So then on, on another note, and, and, and I say this, you know, almost playfully in a way, but then why, uh, why four law firms? Why not, why not just one? <laughs> because that's what I enjoy, right? So I really enjoy the business of law and I enjoy moving forward and trying new things. I give a long list of things I've tried and succeeded at and a long list of things I've tried and were not successful, but I... I like the challenge of new things. So I am not aware of any other organization that has four different law firms under the same umbrella. The first opportunity came where we could take over Jacoby and Myers, and that was very exciting from a business perspective. How do we do it? What's the analysis from a financial perspective? standpoint? What's the cash flow component? How do we integrate the cultures? And that was worked out to be a great success. And once that happened, then other law firms reached out to me and asked me to do the same. And we did. And the center part of that evaluation was always, is this a institution that based on its reputation will produce future business because I've recognized that it's never, I'm straying a little bit from your question, but what I've learned through going through the process is it's never about the inventory of what the law firm that you're getting involved with is. It's about the future business because the opportunity costs and time spent in analyzing that law firm and the culture because it is a there's a lot of due diligence to do it successfully that's necessary. You can't decide to do it based only on the existing inventory. It is is there an ability to produce future business and how what's the strategy on how you would go about doing that. So you've since successfully taken over four firms to date, but I believe that you mentioned that there was one merger that was not as successful. What, what, you know, if, if you're open to it, what happened there and what was the lesson learned? Very simple. That checked off all the boxes of 
the existing inventory? Was it uh, strong enough to carry it through the transition period? Was it an organization that had an opportunity to produce more business? Yes, yes. And culturally, did it meet with our culture? The answer was yes. However, it turned out to be wrong. And that completely failed solely because of culture. Once the integration was made, there were culture conflicts that were not acceptable and it just failed. And frankly, the everybody who joined left intentionally. So you believe, I mean, values have to be in alignment from the very beginning. It's like, it's, it's ultimately, you believe that that's something that can't necessarily be changed later on in the process. No doubt about it. And I did spend time talking about the culture, but I, what I learned from that is I had to do more in testing the culture. They said all the right answers. It was like an interview. Not Just think of it for people who hire. You ask these questions, you take their answers at face value, you probe a bit, but you never really know until somebody's in and working with you as to what their true work ethic is. And this was not about work ethic. It, it was about culture. And frankly, it was about the people who came in were treating those who were here. We had a small group of about 15 people join an organization of 300 and they were demeaning. They were nasty. They were accustomed because the leader of that organization treated those people in a derogatory way. Now, when I spoke with all of them, nobody disclosed that because they couldn't see it. They were in it. So they thought the way they treated one another was the way that law firms operate. Well, we learned the hard way and it just didn't work out. Now, if you look back over the past several years, what, what were a few of the key decisions that you made that you feel had the greatest impact on, on your success and the success of the firm? One of them would be surveys, getting the feedback and, and surveys, asking clients how we feel, but also I survey my staff as to how I'm doing and uh, make sure it's anonymous so that people can be truthful. And it is humbling to hear some of the comments that come back, but it's also stings a bit, right? But it's good to hear that, to recognize that there's always room for improvement on that interpersonal component of treating one another. So on a human factor, it's getting feedback with surveys. From a practical standpoint, the creation and development of focus groups has made a material difference in the outcome of cases, primarily because the insight that focus groups provide in the prosecution of cases is invaluable. So the net effect of running focus groups isn't solely the knowledge that you get in what's the right uh, facts and the right way to present a case, but it's also the confidence that it provides to the trial attorney because prior to focus groups, lawyers are very, very good at guessing. And they even trick themselves into guessing with such confidence that they know that they're right that this particular fact is so important, or my client makes a good witness, or this defendant is going to come across very poorly. And they, they really believe it, but they never test it. 
And we've learned, and I started doing them over 15 years ago, that even though you do your best at guessing and your experience at guessing, until you test it and tested a few times, you can't have the true confidence that you're absolutely right. But once you have the confidence that you're absolutely right, then your trial is very easy. Now, from the beginning in, in, in taking over your father's firm, you know, the, the firm started it was 60 years ago. Did you ever run into any, I guess, questions about perhaps like imposter syndrome of, of being able to not only take over this firm, but to grow it and take it to new heights? Was there any self-doubt? No, I never had self-doubt. I uh, be honest with you, but I was very cautious about stepping into my father's firm because I knew that I'd be held to a different standard than everybody else. And I welcome anybody who ever wants to reach out to me. If you're a, a child joining a parent's practice, I'm happy to share with you just my experience. I think it's it was challenging and it was daunting. And the reality is that you have to earn people's respect. Nobody gives respect. And I walked in, I did not have an office. I literally had a mail cart that I, because we're out of offices physically space-wise. So I said, I don't need an office. I'll just take a mail court. And every day I just grabbed a mail cart and would patrol around the office looking for an open office, an attorney who was either on trial, whatever. And I would sit there and get my work done. And nothing beats hard work. Nothing beats putting the time and energy in to invest in yourself and you don't have to tell anyone, look at what I'm doing, because it will show. It will show in the competence with which you carry yourself, with which the way you present your arguments, and the way that you attack things. And if you choose to work hard and recognize that not everything will be successful, then you should be respected by your colleagues. And I'm fortunate that that's what happened with me. But I always worked hard. And and the reason why I never doubted my abilities to do that is I really don't care about failure because I view failure as such a positive thing of what you learn from it. So I never expected to do everything right, but I knew that the second time around, I would get it right. So there are plenty of times anybody who's tried cases and really tried cases knows the sting of a loss, but you got to get up and you got to keep trying those cases. And what and the most important thing and the most successful trial attorneys are the ones who do an autopsy of the case that they just tried and lost, figures out what went wrong. And it's not always you as the attorney, but you analyze it and you get up and you do it again. And then you begin to become more and more successful. And it's the same thing in business. And it's the same thing with interpersonal skills. And I have learned that you just got to be yourself and just keep pushing forwards. And over the years, you've seen a number of firms succeed, firms fail, You know, people that have achieved their goals, others that have failed to achieve their goals. What do you feel is the reason why most uh, firm owners really fail to achieve their goals? lack of alignment, lack of alignment between what the, I'll say the partners or the founders goals are with their staff. When it's not aligned, that's when failures happen. So it may sound simple. What's in alignment? Well, what is our true objective here? Is it to 
work until I retire or is it to create a, a organization that can stand on its own without my personal involvement, which is the latter. And in order for that to happen, it requires everybody to be aligned with their personal responsibilities. They can't be dependent upon a few people to carry the the organization. Everybody has to have their oar in the water rowing in the same direction. And when that doesn't happen, that's when I've seen organizations fail. I know you have uh, unique thoughts also around procrastination. Tell me about that. Every year I have lunch with every single person in my office, not individually, but I do it in small groups. And uh, we talk about a whole host of different things. But one central theme one year was about procrastination. And, and I think procrastination is the number one cause of people not accomplishing what they need to accomplish, not just in goals, in life and in relationships and on a human level, because people don't intentionally procrastinate. And what they do, in my experience, is they they take something and fill the void so they feel like they're busy. They feel like they're active. So for, on a business standpoint, uh, the example that I give is people will come in all the time and they'll be very busy. They'll be on the phone. They'll be working. They'll be running around doing whatever it may be. And oftentimes they are the biggest procrastinators because if you look at their desk, there's a little pile on the left-hand side. And they come in and they walk in and whether it's conscious or subliminally, they look at that pile and they go, oh, I can't do that today. So let me fill my day with all of these other ministerial or or they could be important, but they're not truly that important. The, the real important tasks are in that pile to the left and they just procrastinate because it is something they just don't want to do. So it sits and it sits and it sits. And then what it does is it starts to pay an emotional toll on people because they know deep down that they need to get to that pile, but they are filling their time. And it's really important to just dive in, get it done, that sense of accomplishment of doing the hardest thing in your days first you avoid that procrastination. And it also works with relationships, whether it's an employer-employee relationship, colleagues, or family relationship with a loved one. The difficult conversations are often the ones that get pushed aside. Oh, I'll, I'll address that later. I'll talk about that later. But that weighs on you. And if you learn to address things right away and just hit it head on and then move forward and put it behind you and not dwell on it. It's yesterday's news. At that point in time, you're you're no longer procrastinating and you're now productive. And in speaking about mentorship and education, I mean, you're someone who provides a lot of ed- education to other lawyers and law firms, you know, including coaching lawyers on how to handle big cases. Why? The true reason is I love doing it. It's a lot of fun for me. I love working with other lawyers. I do a fair amount of consulting and I just sit down and I dissect cases with lawyers and and really challenge them to have them think about their cases a little bit differently. I help them with focus groups, help them hone in on what the true issue is. But 
what I have found pretty consistently with all the consulting that I've done is lawyers oftentimes lack the confidence to go with their strongest arguments and just stick with them. And they throw the kitchen sink at cases and they argue in the alternative often. And arguing in the alternative dilutes the power of your strongest argument. And most times you just need to find your one or two most important arguments or facts and build your entire case around that. And I find it a challenge. Number one, what is that most important fact or couple of facts? And then to me, it's somewhat like a game. How can we echo that most important fact and where can we build, bring it in in lots of different ways just to, to emphasize it? So I find it it's not work for me when I'm consulting with lawyers. It's a lot of fun. And I think that they get a lot out of it. And they've shared with me that they do. And at the end of the day, their clients are getting great service. So why do you feel that it's important for just lawyers and law firm owners to continuously invest in their education, both in, in just in the trial practice and the business of law? Because you put out a lot of content. Well, because what we do, if anybody says, what do you do? Nobody says, I'm a perfect lawyer. They say, I practice law. It's the practice of law, not the perfection of law. And practice means practice. And when you practice something, you have to first recognize you, you're not perfect and you can always improve. And the only way that you can improve is by continuously reading, experiencing new things and getting better as often as you can. As a growth-minded leader, Andrew understands the value of continuous education and has a relentless drive to keep improving himself, his firms, and the practice of law as a whole. But not all firm owners seem to be as excited about the impact Andrew's making in the legal industry. I asked him, why does he think that is? Well, that presupposes that I'm making an impact in the legal industry. I'm not too sure about that, but I appreciate the kind sentiment. I think people become comfortable. I'll be honest with you that and I hate opening with that statement, but it's appropriate here that I don't have to work and I don't have to do what I'm doing, but I love what I'm doing. But more importantly, I feel an obligation to give back to the people who have invested in me. And that's my staff. That's everybody who works in my organization. They have trusted me with the most important thing, their family, their well-being. And I feel a tremendous obligation to give back to them and to my community. And I don't foresee that ever stopping. So other people, I think, look at it more individualistically and say, I'm going to accomplish this for myself. I'm going to acquire X amount of dollars. I'm going to acquire various objects, whatever they may be. And then I will, I will hold those things out as for myself as being successful. That's just not how I am wired. And I'm not judgmental if people are comfortable with that. That's fine. But I, I really feel a true obligation to the people who have committed so much 
to this organization to do everything I can to give back, which is, to me, making sure this place continues on so that everybody can meet their professional goals. Now, there's going to be several law firm owners that are listening to this podcast and they're struggling. So meaning that in many cases, they may not know where their next case is coming from. What, what advice would you give to them? Well, I would tell them that don't hesitate to ask. Don't be embarrassed to ask. I ask for cases all the time. I still do. I always do. Hey, can we do business together? People want to do business with somebody who wants to do business with them. Well, they don't know if you want to do business with them unless you tell them. So I, I just tell people, I would love the opportunity to work for you. I would love the opportunity to prove to you why I think my firm is the best. If you give me that opportunity, I won't disappoint you. And I don't hesitate to ask my existing and prior clients. And I tell them exactly this. I say, I really appreciate the trust and confidence that you've put in me and my firm. If there's ever an issue, please let me know. But equally as important, I'm going to ask you to share that information. If we've done a good job, the way I can continue doing this is if you share that with your friends and family. And if there's anybody that you think I can help, don't hesitate to give, would you do that for me? Would you help me that way? People are happy to, but if you don't ask, they don't do it. They're not top of mind. And the question specifically is for those who are concerned about where their next case is coming from, I will share with you, there is a lot of business out there. You just need to ask. I would go to other lawyers and ask them and say, hey, if you have any work that you're looking to refer out, that's how, frankly, my dad started. There was one street that had all the lawyers. He literally knocked on doors. I still do it, not with the same frequency, but you knock on the door, walk in, introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm looking for business. And if you have any business that you think I can help one of your clients with, I'd be honored to do it and keep them informed, let them know, and then continuously ask them for business. I have over 300 lawyers and I don't know how many law firms it is that send me all of their catastrophic cases. Now, these are lawyers who actually do plaintiff's work. Not all of them. Some of them are criminal defense lawyers. Some of them are real estate lawyers. But the reason why they send the work to me is because I asked. It just doesn't drop out of the sky. You know, there's there's no new case tree planted out in my yard. You got to go out and hustle and ask for the work. You know, we have choices. We can sit and wait for the phone to ring or we can go out and make the phone ring. And the way you make the phone ring is go and ask. And, and a lot of people are going to say no. That's okay. A lot of people are going to say no. But if you don't ask, you're guaranteed the answer is going to be no. In looking ahead into the future, if we're looking, let's say, 10 years ahead, what do you believe the law firm of the future looks like? like? What are they prioritizing? What do you believe are the biggest differentiators between the most successful firms and the least successful if we're talking 10 years from now? I think we are in competition with Google and Amazon and Apple. And if we are not at their levels of service, 
then we have challenges. And that's who we're going to be measured against. So the law firm of the future is somebody that can deliver those services in a streamlined way that enables their clients to get the information in a easy format and gets right to the bottom line. So what does that look like? That looks like I championed litigation that was unsuccessful to allow law firms to go public because what I'm referring to is going to require a substantial investment. There'll be very, very few law firms that can rise to that challenge. And I, what's going on now, and I've been saying it for about 10 years, there's a tremendous consolidation in the practice of law. There are a lot of law, f- law firms that are joining forces because they can't compete. And it's no different than in the retail outlet, that you're going to have fewer and fewer very large players. Of course, there will be some one-off in every community, but the future of law is a consolidation. That's how I view it. And I think people ought to prepare for that because of what the consumer, what the clients are going to want. And we're not going to be able to end with with a cliffhanger like that, but I will say that in with the pending consolidation, what can firm owners do today? If you're a solo or a small firm, what what, what would you recommend? Specialize. I would definitely recommend uh, pick a practice area and own it. And even within that practice area, own it. Because the larger firms, frankly, like my firm, I've built it to have subspecialists within my firm. But the perception to the consumer, they don't understand that when they hire us. So I would specialize. I would want to own a particular space, whether it's nursing home, motorcycle, tractor trailer. Uh, That's not to say you won't do other work, but the way to compete is through specialization. And if you look across industries, that's how it happens, right? How do people compete with Amazon? Uh, If you're not selling on Amazon, you specialize in something. Same thing with, just look at, I can take you through lots of different industries and banking, right? There's, you have the big banks, uh, JP Morgan Chase. Well, there's, there's still thousands of smaller community banks. What do they do? Well, each one differentiates themselves, the ones who are smart, by specializing in a particular vertical in the banking world. You can't be everything. So if I was involved in a smaller firm, I would be picking a specialty or two and trying to own that. And Andrew, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Hard work, forward looking. If I was to distill it down to one thing, and I'm going to say the same thing in two different ways, it is never looking back, always looking forward. We're always in three different time frames in our in our mind. We're either thinking about the past, the present, or the future. Most people rarely are in the present. They are always thinking backwards or thinking forwards. Well, if you recognize that you're thinking backwards, if you're having negative thoughts about what if, what if, what if, 
that's a bad place to be living. I personally always live in the future. I'm always thinking 10 years out and what it is. I've, I've got a big flag 10 years down the road and how, what's the path to get there and taking it slowly. But I really don't live in the past. And to me, a game-changing attorney is just that, somebody who's changing the game going forward and not dwelling on the past. What if, what if? I'd like to thank Andrew Finkelstein for taking the time to speak with me today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Andrew mentioned that he doesn't view other law firms as his competition. Instead, he views all other service organizations that his clients can come in touch with day in and day out, such as American Express and Starbucks, as being the real competition in the sense that that is what his firm is being measured against and not any other law firm. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Andrew Finkelstein, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to Army veteran and CEO of Barry Law Firm, John Barry. We're going to talk about leading through adversity and the warrior ethos that has become the foundation for his firm's success. I have a lot of successes, but I'm always hungry. As soon as I get that one success, I want the next one. I want to develop more leaders. I get a guy who's going to blow past me as a better lawyer than I'll be, a better business owner. I love that, but I want 10 more of those. There's never enough success. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 oh,